Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, so I'm, uh, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. Um, I'm uh, uh, hosting the seminar in, in my capacity as a co-director of the Women in Public Policy Program. We are thrilled about this uh, seminar series that we have this spring about um, promoting uh, gender equity in the workplace. I am particularly thrilled um, to have uh, today's speaker, whom I'll introduce in a moment. I believe we are podcasting, is that right? We're doing a podcast. So um, as is always the case, um, uh, we want to think, uh, well, as is always the case, we want to turn off our cell phones, right? <laughs> and we want to make sure that um, when we ask questions, they're actually questions that we keep it focused. But please, particularly because we are podcasting, that we keep in mind, this room is really full already, but we have tens of thousands of folks who download our podcast. And so it's all the more important that we keep ourselves kind of focused and clear as we progress through the conversation. Um, uh, I'm going to turn now to introduce our current speaker. Um, she comes, she arrives with many accolades. Uh, uh, Professor uh, Jessica Clark from um, the uh, Vanderbilt Law School. Um, is going to talk today about her research on they, them, and theirs, including non-binary gender identities in law and policy. Um, more broadly, um, Professor Clark focuses on um, American equality law. Um, and one of the things that's very, I find very profound about her work is not only that she is, is thinking very deeply about a phenomenon that is really at, a, at the forefront of uh, social change within our society, but she's also asking a number of questions that really are very penetrating for just the law itself. And so it's very exciting to hear from her. Um, I am not alone in my enthusiasm for her work. <laughs> I won't go on. She has won the um, uh, Duke uh, Minier Award for Best Legal Scholarship on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Her work has been selected for the Harvard, Stanford, Yale, um, junior faculty forum. Um, she is just, uh, she has um, experience both as a, a legal clerk and as a scholar. I'm not going to go on and on, but I could. I mean, I think this is a really very exciting opportunity for our community um, to engage with this thought leader in a very important space. So please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Clark. for that introduction. Can everyone hear me? Great. So I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak here today. It's a real honor to be here. In fact, um, the lineup for this seminar series is so amazing. I wish I could come every week. <laughs> so they say there are two types of people in the world. People who think there are two types of people in the world <laughs> and people who don't. My topic is non-binary gender, people who do not exclusively identify as men or women. I come at this topic from a perspective as a legal theorist who studies feminism and LGBT rights. For a long time, many progressive feminist and LGBT rights-oriented scholars thought that non-binary gender was a non-starter. It was too implausible, impractical, or utopian to merit serious attention. But today, 
an increasing number of people in the U.S. identify themselves as non-binary. And the new visibility of this group is prompting legislatures, businesses, and courts to question laws and policies that presume there are only two gender identities. I'm interested in what it would mean for law and policy to take non-binary gender seriously as an identity that deserves equal respect to those um, whose gender identities are um, that of a man or a woman. Last month, I published an article in the Harvard Law Review titled, They, Them, and Theirs, which are um, common gender-neutral pronouns, arguing that the law can recognize non-binary gender identity or eliminate unnecessary sex classifications using familiar civil rights concepts. It's a 100-page article, and it covers a range of topics from prison housing to high school sports. But because this seminar series is about the workplace, I want to focus today on workplace inclusion issues. I'd like to start by laying out some basic concepts, explaining what non-binary gender is, and describing how it is treated in American law. Then I'm going to say a bit about my theoretical framework, discussing various regulatory approaches that institutions and lawmakers might take towards including non-binary gender. And last, I'm going to talk about two controversies that affect non-binary gender rights in the workplace, and those are pronoun usage and restroom access. So before we discuss non-binary and gender, we've got to get some key concepts out on the table from the transgender rights movement. And I apologize to those of you for whom this is old hat, but I need to make sure everyone in the room is on the same page. It's important that we disaggregate three ideas that many people conflate. Those ideas are sex assigned at birth, gender identity, and gender expression. So to start out with sex assigned at birth, this is the M or the F designation that gets marked down on a baby's birth certificate. And generally, it's based on visual observation of the baby's genitalia. We usually assume that sex assigned at birth matches up with some sort of chromosomal or hormonal makeup that a person has. Uh, but that's not always the case. In about 2% of births, the various characteristics that doctors use to determine sex don't all point towards M or F. These infants are said to have intersex variations. A key distinction in transgender advocacy is between sex assigned at birth and a person's gender identity. Gender identity is defined as a person's own internal sense of whether they're a man or a woman, a girl or a boy. It's a concept that may find its origins in brain chemistry or in the concept of the psyche or perhaps even the soul. Some people don't exclusively identify as a man or a woman. These people are non-binary. Non-binary gender identities are the topic of my research. Non-binary is not the same thing as transgender, although it's often said that non-binary people fall under the transgender umbrella. Transgender is defined by LGBT rights organizations as not identifying with the gender associated with the sex a person was assigned at birth. So for example, Caitlyn Jenner, she's a transgender woman because she was assigned the male sex at birth, but her gender identity is that of a woman. 
because she exclusively identifies as a woman, Caitlyn Jenner is a transgender woman, but she is not non-binary. Non-binary is not the same thing as intersex. There are some people who both have intersex variations and non-binary gender identities, but most people with intersex variations identify exclusively as either men or women, and most people with non-binary gender identities don't have any intersex variations. An important distinction um, is also with respect to gender expression. Non-binary is not the same thing as androgynous. Androgyny is one type of gender expression, in other words, one way that people present themselves to the world in terms of masculinity or femininity with their attire, style, demeanor, and so forth. But gender expression is different from gender identity. I'm sure we all know plenty of people who are women but wear masculine attire, for example. Non-binary people don't all appear androgynous. This picture shows star Peggy Mascara and Sarah Kelly Keenan. These are two of the first people who legally changed their identity documents to non-binary in California. Some non-binary people prefer to present themselves in stereotypically feminine or masculine ways, and some don't. Other non-binary people might adopt their own unique blends of masculine and feminine, or reject gender altogether, or try to use fashion to subvert, rework, or undermine gender. <coughs> there are as many non-binary gender identities as there are non-binary people. Those identities have different names, like genderqueer, agender, gender fluid, um, and so forth. Since 2014, the social media website Facebook has offered over 50 drop-down menu options for gender identity. And in 2015, they said, we're just going to make it a free-form field. But it's a misconception to think non-binary gender is a feature of the internet age or an invention of American social media. Many cultures have examples of non-binary genders, including the Hijras of India and two-spirit people of some Native American tribes. Here are just a few examples of ethnographic studies demonstrating that contemporary Western ideas of male and female are historically and culturally specific. When I was writing my article, I had a stack of books like this that was this high on my desk. What's new about non-binary identity is its cultural uptake and visibility in the US in the last four years. This is a graph from the 2015 US Transgender Survey, the largest survey of transgender people to date with 28,000 respondents. The finding that really seemed to surprise the researchers was that 85% of respondents stated that they preferred to be categorized as non-binary. If the Williams Institute is right, and there are about 1.4 million transgender people in the US, that means there are half a million non-binary people, a population about the size of the city of Miami. But the US Transgender Survey probably didn't get at a lot of non-binary people who don't consider themselves to fall under the label transgender. So the number of non-binary people could be even larger. According to Pew Research, one-third of Generation Z, those born after 1996, knows a non-binary person. And a survey of college students found 1.5% described their gender identity as something other than man, woman, trans man, or trans woman. So that would be about 300 of the undergrads here at Harvard. 
Non-binary gender is entering popular culture, which may increase the number of people who feel like it's possible to live non-binary lives. There's now a non-binary character on a cable TV show, Billions on Showtime, and Netflix and Amazon both have a show in which a character is moving towards coming out as non-binary. In just the last three years, US lawmakers and institutions have begun to take non-binary gender seriously. This chart shows in purple states that have changed their rules to allow non-binary designations on either birth certificates or driver's licenses, or sometimes both. And most all of these changes have been just since 2016. In 2017, California passed the Gender Recognition Act, which allows anyone to switch their sex designation to M, F, or X, so long as they attest it's not for any fraudulent purpose. New Jersey and Washington, D.C. passed similar laws shortly after California. And six other states, which are in light purple, along with New York City, have passed rules through administrative agencies, like their DMVs. The five states that I've marked in green are ones where rules to allow non-binary designations have been proposed but not yet passed, and I predict that they will pass at some point. But even though eight states offer individuals the right to an X designation on a document, that doesn't mean non-binary people are protected against discrimination. And this is unfortunate, because transgender people who are non-binary may be uniquely vulnerable to discrimination and violence. Perhaps because many non-binary people fail to conform with gender norms in a visible way, or perhaps because their identities are so often misunderstood. Federal law does not explicitly prohibit discrimination based on non-binary gender or even gender identity. It does, however, prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. In its regulations on what this means under the Affordable Care Act, the Obama administration took the position that discrimination on the basis of non-binary status is a type of sex discrimination because it's based on the sex stereotype that gender is binary. But the Trump administration has announced it plans to undo um, all regulations of this sort. There are 22 states that prohibit discrimination based on gender identity, and these laws ought to apply to non-binary gender. But I'm not aware of any reported legal cases on whether discrimination against someone for being non-binary violates any law outside the context of identity documents. The question my law review article addresses is, what would it mean as a practical matter to treat non-binary gender identities on par with those of men and women? In the legislative debates over California's Gender Recognition Act, one conservative group insisted that it didn't oppose non-binary gender for ideological or religious reasons. Rather, they were concerned that recognizing non-binary gender would unleash a Pandora's box of disastrous consequences. <laughs> so I'm interested in this genre of argument, and I realize I can't persuade anyone who has an ideological or a religious commitment to binary gender roles. But what I want to do instead is talk to progressives, progressives who might be cautious about non-binary gender and worried that it's going to attract a backlash that's going to sink all of their feminist and LGBT priorities. Some feminists have called non-binary rights projects utopian, while others are afraid non-binary gender is going to be the end of gender instead of new possibilities for gender. 
some transgender rights advocates have had political success with a certain narrative. It's a born in the wrong body narrative of gender identity. And some non-binary people don't fit that narrative because they don't think they were born in the wrong body. They just don't identify as men or women. There are worries that non-binary inclusion is gonna undermine legal arguments, especially since some people think non-binary gender is not real or it's a trend or it's a political posture. My thesis is the law and policy can protect non-binary gender rights through the modest extension of familiar civil rights concepts. And that rather than being a threat to progressive interests, non-binary gender rights may have benefits for feminist and LGBT rights projects. Because my aims are practical, I'm not gonna advance any new theory of sex or gender. And I'm not gonna answer any debates about nature versus nurture. Um, I'm also not gonna advance the moral case for non-binary gender rights. Um, it's hard to persuade people with an abstract moral case. Um, I think if we're gonna protect people against discrimination based on their gender identities as men or women, we should also protect people based on their gender identities as non-binary for the same reasons. I'm also not interested in debating whether transgender men and women are entitled to equal rights. I take for granted that transgender men are men and transgender women are women, full stop. Mm -hmm. The question I'm interested in is, if we accept that gender identity as a man or a woman is something an individual tells you themselves then why force people into just those two boxes? What practical or legal reasons are there for insisting that gender identity be binary? In the post-Obergefell era, where same-sex marriage is now totally legal, and criminal law and family law don't rely on formal sex distinctions, there are diminishingly few contexts in which we need binary sex or gender. My article brainstorms those contexts, and it argues that in each of these areas where we think we might need two categories, there are ways to recognize non-binary gender rights. My article also tries to give some terminology and structure to debates over non-binary gender rights by describing three possible approaches the law could take. The first approach is neutrality. Get rid of your sex categories. Treat sex the way the law treats race. An example of this would be, instead of the men's room and the women's room, all gender restrooms. A second approach is third category recognition. Add the X option onto the M and the F. An example of this is California's Gender Recognition Act. Let people be an, an X on their driver's licenses. <coughs> California considered neutrality, so they considered just taking the gender designation off the ID. Uh, but California was barred from doing this by a federal law, the Real ID Act. And a number of transgender people said, don't do that, because we need an ID that indicates our gender identities in order to access spaces that are reserved for men or women. Unfortunately, we live in a world where there are still a lot of spaces that are segregated by sex. So we need that ID in order to avoid harassment from law enforcement. So that's third category recognition. And a third approach is integration. So keep the sex categories, but redefine them along functional lines so as to make space for non-binary people. And here's a healthcare example. 
So you could have a gynecologist who says, I only treat women. Or you could have a gynecologist who says, I only treat people with, with a uterus or ovaries or other body parts that I specialize in. Um, this would mean that the gynecologist could treat people with intersex variations, non-binary people, and transgender men instead of defining the category of women in a way that's exclusive. Often debates over non-binary gender are stifled by the idea that non-binary people want neutrality across the board, or they want third category recognition across <coughs> the board. Uh, but there's no one approach that's going to work in every context. So my argument is, rather than insisting on a blunt strategy, we should ask, what competing interests are at stake in each context in which non-binary people are excluded? <coughs> my law review article goes through all the arguments people have made about why non-binary gender rights would be impossible and ridiculous in all these various contexts and takes them apart one by one. With respect to the workplace, there aren't a lot of these arguments because there are diminishingly few jobs in which it is legally permissible to hire only men or women. Even combat positions in the military are officially desegregated. So the main challenge for non-binary workers is overcoming the biases and discrimination against them. I'd like, to I'd like to talk now about two controversies on my list that are the most salient in workplaces, and those are pronouns and restrooms. <clears throat> so one concern is, if we're going to try to include non-binary people, will workplace harassment law require everyone to use unfamiliar pronouns, like they, them, and theirs, to refer to a single person? or other alternatives like Z and here. Some people would agree that it's illegal harassment for, say, Caitlyn Jenner's boss to repeatedly and intentionally call her he. That's insulting, and it's degrading, and it demeans Caitlyn Jenner's gender identity as a woman. But they may not agree that employees could be forced to use gender-neutral pronouns. There hasn't been a lot of litigation over this, uh, but a number of localities and institutions have regulations that interpret anti-harassment rules to require the use of a person's correct pronouns, including non-binary ones. The right-wing media has picked up on this, and commentators argue that requiring non-binary pronouns is a unique and unprecedented threat to free speech and a dangerous form of thought policing. But on more careful examination, we can see that rules requiring respect for pronouns are modest extensions of harassment law. So I want to talk about the arguments against them. First Amendment scholar Eugene Bollock has argued that, quote, compelling people to change the way they use ordinary, commonplace words of everyday speech, turning plurals into singulars, or vice versa, is a serious imposition. So why does he think this is a serious imposition on people's freedom? I want to unpack that. Is it because we are compelling people to say something they disagree with as opposed to telling them to remain silent? In other words, is it that the law cannot compel recognition of someone's status? That can't be the reason. Can't be the, reason. the history of the civil rights movement has lessons for us here. Ordinary speech is plastic, and it often reflects changes in group status and dignity. In fact, the law is a regular participant in the process of social change by compelling speech that reflects and reinforces that change towards equality. 
This is Miss Mary Hamilton, pictured on the left. She's an African-American woman who was held in contempt of court in the 1960s because a white lawyer insisted on addressing her as Mary instead of Miss Mary. At the time, Miss was a term of respect that had long been reserved only for white women. Miss Mary Hamilton demanded that she be addressed as Miss as well, and that honorific Miss was to reflect her equal status notwithstanding her race. The Supreme Court summarily reversed her contempt order. She had a right to be called Miss. Another example is the popularization of Ms. on the right. So Ms. was popularized by 1970s feminists as an honorific to make clear women are not defined by their marital status. Non-binary people may ask to use the honorific MX, pronounced mix. It can't be the compelled nature of speech that's the problem here. Equality law not only forbids speech that demeans, but it compels speech that confers equal respect on many protected grounds. Imagine a sexist cop who refuses to refer to his female colleague as officer. He's going to get fired for harassment. The law doesn't care that he's being compelled to say that women can be police officers and he doesn't believe that. That's something harassment law requires. Sometimes equality requires and compels respectful speech. There is no way for the law to treat these attitudes neutrally. Okay, so maybe the concern is specifically about pronouns. Maybe the argument is pronouns are special. Pronouns are closed class words. We only have a few pronouns. Um, proper names and honorifics are open class words. There are myriad honorifics and myriad um, first names people have. And it's easier to learn those, but it's harder to switch up your pronouns. People are really afraid of making mistakes. They are scared of misgendering some, and they don't want to offend, and they don't want to be seen as bad people. In fact, a lot of non-binary people report um, that an experience is someone accidentally misgenders them, and then that person feels so bad they cry. And non-binary people are like, oh, I can cry. <laughs> <laughs> so harassment law is not going to get at that kind of misgendering. Harassment law doesn't punish accidental speech. It punishes discriminatory intent. It requires also that the harassment be objectively severe and per or pervasive. And for that reason, accidentally using the wrong pronoun is unlikely to be a legal violation. Most administrative guidances recognize this and make clear that it is the refusal to use a person's pronouns in a way that's repeated and intentional out of open disrespect that is a violation of the law. All right, um, so another argument is grammar. It's grammatically incorrect to use they to refer to a single person. The primary problem with this argument is that it elevates rules of grammar over considerations of how we treat one another with respect. But it's also wrong on grammatical grounds. English language speakers have always used the singular they to refer to a person of unknown gender. Take Jane Austen. She wrote things like, everybody has their failing. A spin on this argument is we're going to lose clarity in the English language because we're going to get confused when I say they. Who am I referring to? Am I referring to they, the individual, or they, the whole group? Uh, but we also have another word that's like that, and it's you. If I say you, am I referring to you or you? 
both singular and plural. In archaic English, people used thou as singular you and you as plural you, but thou is gone. Why? We didn't need it. People are going to figure it out. People figure out whether you is plural or singular from context. They can do the same thing with they or down in the south, we invented a word y'all to get around this problem. So we can invent a new word, I don't know they all, if it really gets super confusing. Another argument about requiring gender neutral pronouns is there could be no end to them. What if I insisted my gender identity required that I be referred to as her high holiness instead of Professor Clark? I would argue harassment law doesn't require this. It doesn't go so far as to require religious or idiosyncratic forms of address in the workplace. Uh, but the difference between gender and religion is that in most institutional contexts, not everyone is given a religious honorific. And so no one can demand to be called rabbi or sister in a secular workplace. But people are almost always gendered as men or women in workplaces where they get referred to as he or she. If binary gender identities are respected, non-binary gender identities should be as well. I don't think harassment law goes so far as to require respect for any pronouns I might invent on a particular day, and that's because harassment law reflects the social milieu. It requires that harassment be objectively unreasonable, not just subjectively offensive. And so that objective standard takes into account social norms. But mix, they, them, and theirs, and Z and here, they aren't idiosyncratic, and they aren't so crazy. It's objectively unreasonable not to use them. And in administrative regulations, legal guidances, and institutional policies are increasingly requiring the use of those types of pronouns. As more policies require the use of these pronouns and more people start to get accustomed to them, the argument that they're unreasonable will lose force. Uh, there's a playwright, Taylor Mack, and uh, Taylor Mack uses the pronoun Judy, which I think is delightful, but I don't think the failure to use Judy to describe Judy should be legal, legally actionable. It's inconsiderate not to use Judy, and it's also boring, but it's not sex-based harassment for an employer to use one of the other well-recognized non-binary pronouns. Now, you might disagree. You might think, well, we should call Judy Judy. But we don't need to answer all the possible law school hypotheticals here for me to make my point. Legal processes, individuals, and institutions can work this out as circumstances arise. So that's pronouns. Another workplace controversy is restrooms. There have not been many workplace discrimination cases addressing restrooms head on. Generally, restrooms come, at the, come up at the margins of civil rights litigation over women's and LGBT equality. Restrooms are an example. They're used in this, as an example by people who oppose the extension of sex discrimination law to new contexts. These opponents argue, we can't extend sex discrimination law too far because common sense tells us sometimes we have to divide people up by sex. And their example, restrooms. The restroom litigation that has come up has mostly involved transgender kids who identify as either boys or girls, and they're suing their schools. So I'd briefly like to talk about those cases before discussing what they mean for the workplace and non-binary employees. The most high-profile restroom case to date was brought by Gavin Grimm, pictured here. 
At the time of the case, Grimm was a transgender boy whose school district would not allow him to use the boys' restroom. In fact, there was a school board meeting where community members called Grimm young lady and girl, and one compared him to a freak who thought he was a dog and should urinate on fire hydrants. And so instead of allowing Gavin to use the boys' restroom, they told him he'd have to use a special restroom just for him that was in the nurse's office in an inconvenient location. And every time he had to use that special restroom, he was reminded of his community's disapproval. This case demonstrates the danger of third category approaches to non-binary gender rights. Sometimes the third category is used not to protect. Sometimes it can be used to marginalize and stigmatize. At the time of Grimm's case, the Obama administration had taken the position that Title IX's prohibition on sex discrimination requires schools allow students to use the restroom consistent with their gender identities. Because the court deferred to the Obama policy, Grimm won his case in the lower court, uh, but then the school district took it to the Supreme Court. And while the case was pending in the Supreme Court, the Trump administration came in and withdrew the Obama policy. So then the Supreme Court said, following its usual practice, this needs to go back down to the lower court to reconsider the decision in light of the new administration. And while all this was happening and taking up a lot of time, Grimm graduated from high school. So the courts never acted on his claim. Despite the Trump administration, a number of lower courts have come out in favor of transgender kids looking to use the girls' or the boys' restroom. But these cases omit non-binary kids. In one 2017 case, a court noted approvingly that, quote, allowing transgender students to use male or female facilities that align with their gender identity has actually reinforced the concept of separate facilities for girls and boys. But some non-binary kids and adults worry that if there's only the girls and the boys' facility, they won't be able to use any restroom at all. If they try to use the men's room, they may encounter violence, and if they try to use the women's room, they may encounter hostility, fear, and even violence. People with non-binary genders, like many transgender men and women, report avoiding public restrooms altogether with adverse health consequences like dehydration and urinary tract infections. Restrooms are also a wedge issue. In state-level ballot campaigns on LGBT rights questions, restrooms are a scare tactic used to mobilize opposition to LGBT rights. And for a while, LGBT rights organizations didn't address the restroom question at all. They're now making two arguments. The first one is, there's no empirical support for the claim that sexual predators are gonna attack women and girls in restrooms. In fact, it's transgender people who are likely to be the victims of violence in restrooms. This argument is absolutely right. It's absolutely right, but it is not persuasive to the people who are making these billboards and signs. And it's not persuasive because the objection is not rooted in facts, it's rooted in fear. The concern is that male predators will take advantage of lax rules to lurk in women's restrooms. So even if it's never happened before, people fear that it could happen and, the, and they argue the rules should stop. The second argument LGBT rights groups have made is that Gavin Grimm, whose gender expression is masculine, shouldn't be in the girls' restroom. This argument works really well for Gavin Grimm and those like him, but it runs into trouble 
for people who do not easily pass as men or women, like a number of non-binary people. So the best solution for non-binary people is likely to be all gender restrooms. And a move in this direction could have benefits for everyone, defaming opposition to LGBT ballot initiatives, along with having a number of salutary effects for gender equality. It is the very way that US restrooms are designed that creates the privacy problems that sex segregation is supposed to solve. You're laughing, so I'll say that again. It is the very way we design restrooms in the US that is creating the sense of insecurity, fear, and lack of privacy that we think sex segregation is supposed to solve. This is uh, from BuzzFeed, it's from a British author, um, and the author's perplexed. Why do American restroom doors have huge gaps? Look what we do in Britain. No gap. We do not need a gap. Restrooms don't provide privacy because of heteronormative, and that I, by that I mean the belief that everyone is heterosexual, heteronormative assumptions. The assumption that men should not feel threatened by exposure to other men and women should not be threatened by exposure to other women because everyone's heterosexual. But we all know that's false and that the reason people want privacy is not just to avoid um, people looking at us with desirous gazes. People want privacy because they feel vulnerable in restrooms. There is just no reason to leave gaps indoors. There are many door options that provide both visual and acoustic privacy. This is an artistic rendering from the Rhode Island School of Design in this month's Architectural Digest. It's an all-gender restroom with floor-to-ceiling doors and no gaps. This is a picture of a prototype from the Spelled Project, which is working on designs for more inclusive restrooms that would not just accommodate all genders, but would also create more space for people with disabilities, caregivers, and people with religious traditions that require washing and prayer. The basic idea is to create privacy in individual stalls while opening up the sink areas to the public so that those areas don't feel enclosed and dangerous. All gender approaches would allow families to use restroom spaces together. For example, fathers would be able to go into the restroom with their young daughters and wouldn't have to worry about not finding tables for changing diapers. Um, Having caregiving spaces like this is more of a concern for public restrooms than workplace ones, but in the workplace, all gender restrooms would have the benefit of reducing lines. And that's because a lot of workplaces are sex segregated. There's a lot of workplaces where it's just women. And so women are having to wait in line and nobody's using the men's room. Also, there's a lot of workplaces where it's mostly men and they're having to wait in line um, reportedly, this is a problem at Amazon, and the women's room is empty. There is no natural reason that restrooms have to be segregated by sex. There are many examples throughout history of men and women using the same spaces for eliminating and washing. Restrooms are segregated today because of 19th century policies premised on the belief that women are fragile. Women were fragile, so we need special places to rest when we go out in public, hence the name restroom. Uh, restrooms may remain segregated because of stereotypes today about men as naturally predatory or men as invulnerable to harm and abuse, which is why we're not afraid about male predators lurking in men's restrooms. Uh, 
So there are some practical barriers to all gender restrooms. One is legal. There are building codes, anachronistic building codes, that sometimes require restrooms to be sex segregated. But codes can and should change. And there are ways to come up with variances and workarounds. Another barrier is assumptions about cost. But according to architect Joel Sanders, converting restrooms into all gender spaces is not necessarily any more costly than a typical retrofit. There's also an argument um, that the cost, whatever it might be, is just not worth it because there's such a small number of transgender people, the best estimate from 1.4 million. But any number of people whose gender presentations are not conventionally masculine or feminine for whatever reason may encounter violence and harassment in sex-segregated restrooms. And I'd note there are only 3.4 million wheelchair users in the US, but every restroom has to be built to accommodate wheelchairs. The main barriers to this idea are social. Mm -hmm. People are afraid of things they haven't tried. And I've heard every argument you can imagine about why we need sex-segregated restrooms. Um, they haven't tried them, and when they do try them, I think they'll find out that these arguments lack merit. So I'm hopeful that progressive employers and people who are redesigning buildings and institutions are going to take up some of these great design ideas from the stalled project. Here's another visualization. To conclude, we're in a moment in which non-binary gender identities are becoming more socially understood and accepted, but non-binary people still face significant problems of violence, harassment, and discrimination. For too long, feminist and LGBT rights projects saw non-binary inclusion as a threat rather than an opportunity. Theoretical debates can make it appear as though there are irreconcilable conflicts among non-binary gender rights claims and feminist and LGBT priorities, particularly those of transgender men and women. But if we look at how non-binary rights claims might play out on the ground rather than in theory, it turns out non-binary inclusion may have benefits for all of us. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments and answering any questions you might have on this. Thank you for a really uh, stimulating talk. Um, I'm going to dare take the privilege of the of being the moderator to ask the first question, and then we'll um, we'll open it up to the floor. Um, one of the so this this um, weekly WAP seminar that's open to the public is taking place in the context also of a four credit. This is not really working. Four credit class. Uh, I'll just stand and project. Um, take credit in the, in the context of a four-credit class, and the the students in the four-credit class read a number of um, Professor Clark's readings. And one of the challenges, um, one of the in the questions that they had for Professor Clark and in the conversation that came up was a lot of this, um, you know, kind of leaning in, love the idea, and then feeling like the what you know are the practical challenges surmountable and realistic, and what would it take to make social change. And I was hoping a number of the students in particular raised Title IX and some questions about sports. And I know that you have a lot of ideas are in that area. And I was wondering if you could just link some of this. Um, I love the, the, your, anyways, link some of this discussion that you've had now to, to that topic and then we can open up the broader conversation. So I don't think there is one answer to the question, how do we include non-binary people in athletic competitions? I don't think there's one approach that's going to work. I think we can more productively make progress by asking, how can we include non-binary people 
in sports at a micro level, in every game, um, in every division? Does, does any particular game, any particular division need to be sex segregated? I, I could give a whole presentation on sports. I love this topic so much. I brought some of my slides. Like kids' sports, K through 12, why do little kids need to play soccer on sex-segregated teams, like six-year-old kids? Why do they need to do that? We could integrate those teams. There aren't biological differences between girls and boys at that age. Uh, do we want to train them and teach them that boys and girls are inherently different? The NFL. Um, this is a, a woman, um, I believe she won a college sports scholarship as a, as a football kicker. Um, men's sports, why are we excluding people who are women and non-binary from men's sports? If they can play, what's the reason for excluding them from these games? Is it that football is too dangerous for women? Football is too dangerous for men. <laughs> if we let men play and get concussions and risk their lives, what argument justifies not allowing women to play? Um, cheerleading. Men can do that too. Men can cheerlead. Um, there, there is a problem with gender neutrality in sports. This is Quidditch, by the way. <laughs> so there is a problem in elite sports. So if we were to say, let's make elite sports gender neutral and eliminate the women's division of elite sports, you'd have, you, you could potentially have only men competing at elite sports because there's a 10 to 12% performance gap at those elite levels. And then there's a cost in opportunities for people who are not, uh, don't have um, uh, male bodies. And so what, what do we do about that? Gender neutrality across the board might not be a good idea, but we could think creatively. So Quidditch has a rule called Title Nine and Three Quarters. <laughs> so Title Nine, the US law, um, protecting educational quality in sports. Nine and three quarters is the train platform from the Harry Potter books, and Quidditch is a Harry Potter-inspired sport, and it's a real one. People actually play this game. Uh, they have a gender maximum rule, and the gender maximum rule is that um, with your seven players on the field, you cannot have more than four players of the same gender. And this is a rule that accommodates um, people with non-binary gender identities. As you can see here from the slide, these are some uh, Quidditch rule book rules about different types of teams that would meet the Title IX and Three Quarters rule. So we could start rethinking sports in this way, in creative ways. And we could also start rethinking um, the design of games and sports. Why are sports designed in a way that allows um, people with male bodies to shine and achieve? And could we redesign sports, rethink the games that we're playing, maybe along the lines of the Paralympics, in, in ways that allow um, people with different types of bodies, people with different types of skills, like balance, um, to achieve, or people, but not just raw strength and speed. Uh, so I think we need to break it down and ask, with respect to every game we're playing, why is it sex segregated and what alternatives are, are there? And this is a long-term project. Um, the primary barriers, I think, are more likely to be social than they are to be 
um, related to design or physical. I got really excited when I was doing this project. I thought, what about esports? Like, mm -hmm. what about um, sports of the future where people are using genetic enhancements and technology in order to play? Um, couldn't we have desegregated sports that way? And then I thought, oh, wait a minute, what about gaming culture? <laughs> gaming culture is so thoroughly sexist. And there's nothing about men that makes them better at video games. Uh, so we're going to need to address this as a social problem. Can I follow up? Because I have boy girlfriends who just played soccer. <laughs> six. And I played co-ed soccer my entire life, even in college. And I found out that the Cambridge Youth Soccer League had boys and girls leagues, which I was like, where did that come from? There's six. And so I was like up at arms about it. And thankfully, the league was very easygoing. Thankfully, the league was very easygoing. And they said, oh, we'll just put them on the same team. And for some reason in my mind, I assumed they put my daughter on the boys' team. But they put my son on the girls' team. So it's him and 79 girls. And they're kids. They don't care. So it worked out fine. But what was interesting to me was I was like, this is insane. There's six. There's no difference. I mean, my son has two inches on my daughter, but she's tough as nails. And um, but I was talking to some of the moms, and the five-year-old league is is gender mixed, and they were so happy to have their girls in this league because they saw a difference already in the willingness of the girls. So I don't think we do this in a vacuum, and I think that's what's hard. There's already norming that affects girls' gender, and so you know they end up playing defense more, they end up attacking less, or whatever stereotypes. Um, and then I went a step further, and I said, but <clears throat> I don't want my son in the boys' league because there's always like three boys that know how to dribble, and nobody else has any fun. So maybe we should split it into the kids who can dribble league and the kids who can't dribble league. <laughs> and like 80% of the kids would be in the kids who can't dribble league. So anyway, it is, it is really interesting, but I don't think we live in a vacuum. So just eliminating it works for some kids and, and not others. There are some LGBT uh, sports organizations and the way they do it is we'll have three skill levels, A, B, and C. Sort yourself into the skill level where you want to play. And that could be a great solution for amateur and kids sports. Um, firstly, thank you so much. Um, I was wondering if you could speak more on um, law around pregnancy and abortion with relation to non-binary persons. Yeah, so non-binary people can become pregnant. And we ought to be thinking when we design pregnancy policies about whether the language that we're using assumes that the only people who can become pregnant are women. Um, in addition, transgender men can become pregnant. Uh, I think non-binary people might also prompt us to reconsider some of the gender stereotypes that go into pregnancy services, uh, not just for the medical community, but also all of the um, kind of programming around pregnancy pre-birth that assumes that uh, the pregnant person has a male partner. Um, or that assumes um, the pregnant person is going to be the mother. It's possible the pregnant person is gender neutral and there's another mother who feels excluded by this kind of language. And so I think that this is one of the easier fixes, um, just fixing the language and, and thinking more expansively about pregnancy outside of gender stereotypes. It is a threat to a certain line of feminist reasoning, though. 
And that line of feminist reasoning is, we have to protect people against discrimination based on pregnancy because pregnancy is synonymous with being a woman. So it's a type of sex discrimination. I don't think that argument was ever all that persuasive. There are some women who aren't pregnant. Um, if we associate women so closely with pregnancy, I'm also worried that pregnancy is likely to become a basis for discriminating against women if we start to make that equation. It's a very formalistic argument, this one. All women, pregnancy, same category, forbid that kind of discrimination. It's, it's too simplistic. I think the arguments that more are more effective with respect to remedying pregnancy discrimination are those that draw the substantive connection between pregnancy discrimination and women's structural inequality. That's a thicker argument. It's not a formalistic one that equates women with pregnancy. It's, a one, it's one that's going to be based on research and studies that show how pregnancy discrimination operates in the workplace. Hi, um, I was just wondering if you could maybe comment a little bit about um, trans-exclusionary radical feminism um, and talk a little bit about uh, the uh, conflicts and tensions within the feminist community around some of these issues? So there are some um, feminists and uh, they style themselves radical feminists and since um, uh, for decades now they have argued that transgender women are not real women. And um, I don't think much of this debate, I think transgender women are women, and um, I don't want to get into a theoretical debate about what the definition of women is. I'm interested in what purpose does your definition of women serve? What interests are at stake in, defi in defining women that way? And, and why exclude transgender women? What is, what's lost? What's gained? And so people can debate all they would like what, what it means to be a woman, what experiences make someone a woman. I'm, I'm more interested in the practical and logistical arguments. I know trans-exclusionary radical feminists, some people regard that as a slur even. Um, so I try not to use the term because I don't want to insult people, I want to persuade them, and I want to look at the arguments that these people are making and try to take them apart one by one and ask, why is it you think that um, including transgender women or non-binary people is such a threat to things like women's sports or affirmative action for women. Why don't we include transgender women and non-binary people in gender diversity programs? They're not such a large number that we think that then there, there's gonna be no gender diversity for women. It's sort of like the debate over multiracial identities. There are multiracial people out there Affirmative action plans, they handle that just fine. Um, it's not a threat to minority groups, so we can come up with practical solutions by thinking it through that way. Could you, could you give examples of how to, how to have like more inclusive processes in hiring uh, in organization? in terms of hiring, we might think about gender diversity not just as women. We might think about gender diversity in terms of LGBTQ people. So 
non-binary people face discrimination and are often excluded from hiring. They are forced to assimilate in workplaces, so they are forced to um, adopt the binary gender identity sometimes or not to speak out. Like many non-binary people won't ask their coworkers to use the correct pronouns because they're afraid it will just bring discrimination and resistance um, and it will hurt them in their careers. So having a policy uh, so that people know that their pronouns will be respected is a good idea. Um, having an equal opportunity policy that indicates gender diversity is more than just women is another idea. So thank you for your talk. Um, I worry that by centering the sort of like we need to uh, sort of argue to progressive uh, to sort of progressive folks who don't know any better, you've actually managed to sort of erase non-binary people who are already present from the conversation because it's sort of the way you're framing like we need to do these things sort of assumes that the audience that you're speaking to as well as sort of the audience for your work more broadly is cis and just doesn't under or non not is binary uh, and doesn't necessarily understand that um, that sort of these these perspectives and I wonder how you think about that kind of that work of doing the arguing sort of making these practical arguments while still sort of acknowledging a the work that sort of come before in this space and b the people who are already present. Right. So I'm grateful to you for that comment, and would be grateful to you for any ideas about how I can do this better. Um, I. Um, have done my best to find and cite work by transgender and non-binary authors to ask them for comments on the draft. Um, and I've taken many suggestions um, before I finished the law review article. Um, many things got revised in accord with ideas and input that people gave to me. Um, in addressing a progressive audience, I didn't mean to exclude or erase um, people who are non-binary and who know this stuff better than I do. And I um, am extremely grateful to them and, and hope that they will continue to give me input. Um, I think in addressing a progressive audience, I'm more meant to cabin a certain set of arguments that I'm not interested in addressing, um, like the argument that transgender women aren't women, like the argument that non-binary gender isn't real. Those aren't, those aren't debates I'm interested in having. And so that was what I intended to do, and, and I do apologize um, for um, making it seem as though I'm not talking about people who are non-binary and, and do know this stuff better than I do. Can I just ask a quick follow-up question? Mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't have picked up on that. And can you, can you just illuminate a little bit better? Like, I, I just didn't get it. I, it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have anticipated that question. And if you could help us just for learning more broadly, like, is there, do you mind me asking the follow-up? I'm glad to hear the answer. Okay. okay. Sure. Um, so for context, my name's Kendra Albert. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm a lecturer at law at the law school. And so what I mean by that is I think there's a way in which when we're speaking of like, ah, you, uh, we need to convince allies to like get on the same side as us. It actually erases the fact that a, uh, you know, a lot of what the professor has been talking about is, I think, context that as as she said, right, is very familiar to non-binary people. The same arguments that non-binary folks are using. It's awesome to hear someone else talking about it because, frankly, that's less work for us. But um, 
I think that one challenge is you have to be thoughtful about how you present these kinds of arguments because one assumption that I can make is that the people who you're talking to, sort of the people in power to make these kinds of decisions, are the ones who are, are cis, right? Because it erases the folks who's are, who are already there. So I think that when you talk about like, oh, I'm trying to convince this progressive group or like we need to make these decisions, you know, there are, I have no doubt, I don't know the Kennedy School that well, but I have no doubt that there are many non-binary folks at the Kennedy School. And one challenge when you're dealing with these problems is how do we elevate the voices of people who have had these experiences and had to deal with like the difficulty, the discrimination, et cetera, while still sort of also talking about the practical reality of like how do we make this stuff into law? And so I really enjoyed uh, the article because I think it is a real question to how to like sort of deal with the practical component but I think that you need to value like the narrative stories of people who've gone sort of through these experiences and sort of use um, to the extent that we give platforms to folks to talk about sort of logistical stuff, right? Or the sort of how to make this a little easier or how to put this in conversation with feminist or LGBTQ perspectives. It's incredibly important to center the folks who actually experience the discrimination in that narrative. Yeah, I think that's so important and um, it was a, a struggle for me writing this paper. Um, it, it's a, like something that kept me up at night, wondering, can I write this paper? Uh, and I am so passionate about this topic, I couldn't stop myself from writing the paper. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> and I had no idea the Harvard Law Review would want to publish it. I'm really glad they did to give the ideas more of a platform. And I've tried to include um, a number of narratives in the paper. I had to think more about how I could better do that in my presentation. Um, there are a lot more narratives in the paper that I tried to present in a way that, that wasn't, I'm twisting these to meet some sort of theory that I had already and I'm trying to use these narratives. I was trying to highlight narratives. The paper starts out with a, a narrative from the testimony before the California legislature of one non-binary person. Um, but that's a comment that's going to help me improve the way that I present this work in the future, so I'm very grateful to you for that. At the same time, I don't want to overburden. I don't want to be like, oh, non-binary people come help me with my project. That's not, that's not your job. But if you do want to help me, I'm so grateful. <laughs> I think right here in the front, here, Katie. Hi, so thank you for this. Um, it's really eye-opening for those of us who don't know much about this subject. Um, and so my question is, it might be a little fluffy, but the, the thought about reinventing all the restrooms in, in the entire world is a massive undertaking. Mm -hmm. So, and, and in the case that you mentioned, the problem I feel is really with the school and the people who are discriminating. So do you also have suggestions from maybe learnings we've learned from behavioral science? Like how can we reframe those issues within people's minds instead of having to redesign something. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Right, so I think part of the project is a cultural one, that there's a lack of familiarity with non-binary gender, and so um, there's not even awareness of the possibility, and then when people hear about it, sometimes they react in ways that are negative and hostile uh, for a variety of reasons. Some people just think it's strange. Uh, some people are very committed to binary gender. They have gender reveal parties when they're pregnant um, because they're so excited to have a boy or a girl. 
And for those people, the idea of non-binary gender may be a threatening one. Um, but if they got to know someone who was non-binary, maybe it'll be less threatening. Uh, popular culture has something to do with it, so having non-binary characters on television, I think, will go very far in helping to destigmatize non-binary identity as it has done for um, other LGBT identities, and then um, getting to know non-binary people is a way to break down the stigma. Law and policy can only go so far, so telling someone not to discriminate um, only achieves so much. So I apologize to everyone for referring back to six-year-old twins. <laughs> we go swimming in Minneapolis. There's um, when we go swimming with my in-laws. There's a male locker room and a female locker room, and there's a sign on very prominent that says, "No children four or older can go in to the locker room." That's a different sex or gender. Wow. And you know, when you have a four-year-old, you don't want to send a four-year-old into a locker room by themselves. So it's never been a problem for us practically because it's always like my in-laws, my parent, you know, my husband. And so there's tons of adults to take the children into the right restrooms. The Cambridge um, Rec Center has a female locker room, a male locker room, and a family locker room. And the family locker room is very useful because if you have a six-year-old girl and your dad, or vice versa, you can go in there. It's often busy. Um, they have three separate stalls which are big and have a shower. The toilet is separate, which is a pain, but anyway. Um, but it's a lot less efficient than, so my question is about locker rooms. And is it, it, it it's in some sense it's the same as restrooms, it's about money. Um, but I'm just curious, uh, a men's locker room or a women's locker room, there's a ton of communal space. And um, you know, there's just, it, it would just be a lot more space intensive, I think, to have sort of individual stalls in a locker room, um, maybe with communal sinks. Um, so is there some thinking about what this would look like for locker rooms? I, I certainly think the family locker room is a step in the right direction because anybody can go in there and anybody can use those stalls, um, but it's still a little bit of a separate but equal sense. Yeah, so I think the solution for locker rooms is private spaces for those who want privacy, whether they're created through curtains or through different architectural ideas. A lot of people want privacy for reasons other than avoiding the other sex. Um, a lot of people want privacy because they have body image issues. A lot of people want privacy just because they wanna be in control over who can view their naked body. Um, there was one case about a transgender kid in a locker room and the Department of Education did an investigation and they found out that kids having to shower together, they were getting their friends to hold up towels so no one could see. So I think this privacy question, while it might have been sparked by transgender rights issues, is tapping into something deeper about the way people want and need privacy and suggests we ought to rethink this architecture. Um, we've redesigned bathrooms um, according to the <laughs> Americans with Disabilities Act and we could re redesign bathrooms again. Bathrooms don't have to be the way that they are. Uh, there's a lot of new construction going on. A lot of times buildings are getting renovated and there's no thought given to gender inclusivity. Why? Once again, thank you. Um, as you were going through the, um, the slides, you went over the slide of Casta Semenya, who is currently going through the situation with uh, the IAAF and the International 
Olympic Committee about her level of testosterone and whether she can compete as a woman or not. Um, and I think the recent one was that her testosterone is three times higher than the average woman, whatever that means for, for them. And I just wondered how, she, how this situation with her fits into this conversation. Yeah, so elite women's sports present some interesting questions. I am not someone who could speak about the evidence uh, that testosterone aids performance in track and field events. I have looked at the science and the data, and it is complicated, and it is well beyond my ken. So I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but there are people who are working on it, um, like uh, Katrina Carcasis and others who have written up really interesting things about this debate. Um, I think the controversy over um, intersex and transgender men in women's sports um, is apart from non-binary athletes, and yet the same solutions that might apply to them could apply to non-binary athletes. Um, I, uh, despite not being able to master the debate over the biology, um, I find it troubling that it seems to be women of color from the global south who are targeted by testosterone testing. and. Uh, Testosterone is the thing that gave Castor Semenya an advantage over these two athletes who are white athletes from Canada and the UK. Not class, not race, it's testosterone. That's the thing that we think gives people an unfair advantage. <laughs> not any of the myriad other biological characteristics like being taller, being faster, being stronger, things that things you were born with. Why? The way that sports are divided up based on gender, could there be other ways to divide up sports? I want, I want to think more creatively about how we're dividing people up and what kinds of athleticism are, we're showcasing and why, why is it gendered? I don't have a quick answer, though, to, to that controversy. Anyone? What? Oh, yeah, please. Uh, you said earlier that there are some debates that you're not kind of interested in working on or having, and I, I, I'd love to hear a little more about that because it's something that I think about here at you know the Kennedy School. Like I'm not really interested in having the debate that like women aren't good at math. Like I, I'm not interested in having that discussion. I'm just like I don't care. You're wrong. <laughs> but, but that's probably like. Uh, but I think you know. Uh, talking to people who agree with me on like 99% of what I think and like teasing out that 1% and like, you know, should it be all gender bathrooms or is it better to have three options or, you know, these discussions, sometimes these can end up feeling a bit like we're like talking in an echo chamber around the edges, you know, and living in Cambridge is like wonderful. You go to these places with gender neutral bathrooms and vegan options and you're like, yeah. Um, but in such a fractured time, I'm curious as to how you how you made that decision and how you think about so it. So I, I am interested if anyone wants to argue that transgender women are not women, I will argue with them. But in this forum, I want to talk about non-binary gender. And the problem is if you invite a conversation about transgender rights in general, it can dominate the whole hour. And then you don't get to talk about any of these topics. So that's what I wanted to say in 
suggesting I'm not interested in debating whether transgender women are women or is sex nature or nurture. I mean, those are great topics, but they could take up our whole time. And so it's more about our time constraints today. So I think what you're saying is you're not, you're, that's not a matter of principle for you. That's a matter of in this context and moment, you didn't want to. In the, in the paper and in yeah. this context, those aren't debates I'm interested in having right now, but I will have them later, and I'd be happy to talk with you more if you'd like. Well, I wish we could just keep you around to keep talking about this. We have a lot to learn from the conversation. So um, please join me. I think I'm okay. Thank you. Please join me in uh, thanking our speakers.